G'day, humans. Well, we are in the penultimate week of an election campaign in Australia in which minority parties are advertising impossible nonsense, like that they'll hold interest rates at 3% somehow. And the major parties are targeting negative ads at micro-demographics on social media, where the leaders' debate was marred by shout-fests that sucked up all the oxygen in the room, the media chasing them along like obedient little toads. This is not a political episode today. It's a consciously apolitical one. This is about the deepest conversations we have with ourselves and each other, about what it means to be an individual, what it means to be part of a community, what it means to flourish and to decay. In the throes of a partisan political battle, perhaps more than ever, we need to lift our eyes and open our minds and talk to each other across the trenches, across the front line, in ways that are rational and provocative and sometimes, yes, just a little, uncomfortable. Today on the show, one of Australia's greatest Paralympians, uh, Kurt Fernley, an amazing bloke, uh, born with a congenital disorder that prevented fetal development of certain parts of his lower spine, which has meant that he's always uh, been unable to walk. He has risen to the heights of athletic triumph. Um, He focuses on long and middle distance wheelchair races. He's won medals in sprint relays as well. He participated in the 2000 Games, 2004, 2008, 2012, uh, 2016 Summer Paralympics. He has 13 medals, three gold, seven silver, three bronze. Uh, He's been triumphant at the Commonwealth Games. He was the Australian flag bearer at the closing ceremony of the 2018 Commonwealth Games. I mean, incredibly accomplished and also a true humanitarian who's just channeled all of the celebrity and success that he's had into the most worthwhile causes. I won't bang on about him here. You'll hear what an incredible, insightful and thoughtful person he is. And I wanted to talk to him. I mean, the uncomfortable component of this conversation is like, how do you talk to people who are living with a disability? Do you mention it? Do you not mention it? Like when you relate to someone in a wheelchair, do you not quite know how to tiptoe around that? He's very blunt. He's very direct. He'll tell you how to talk. Please enjoy as much as I did. Kurt Fernley. How things been? Uh, busy as buggery, yeah. <laughs> busy as hell, man. Like, um, the world kind of opened up, right? And... Um, not only opened up, but wanted wants everything done by June, and um, yes, and Tell not willing it. to push anything out past July. I think, <laughs> particularly in Australia, I think we're a bit cautious to plan. Ooh, September. Let's let's not go that far yet. Exactly. Who knows what's going to happen? There might be. I don't know what the next Greek letter is, but there might Correct. be another one. Correct. Um, I think. Yeah. So I, I the confidence confidence is coming back, but it's com- coming back in. Like a hurry, you know, yeah. not, in a, yeah. not in a standard, confident way where you can book something six months away and be be, be happy to plan it. It's, yeah, no, it's frantic, isn't it? Frantic. I was talking to a talkback. I was just talking to a talkback caller on 
the air and she was saying, oh, I've just planned my, um, which she said, uh, we've got a 60th uh, high school reunion that we're planning because we haven't been able to do it the last year and we weren't able to do it the year before. So we're finally going to do it now. And I said, when is it? And she goes, uh, we're planning it for September. And even I myself felt like, I was like, don't you want to just do it now? <laughs> I don't know. I wouldn't be banking on September. I don't know what, what you know, we're we all going to be inside again in September. I don't know. Let's uh, oh, you know, do Jesus it. If you want to do it, do it now. But yes, yeah, I've got, well, that's, that's the reality. Right? Yeah. How did you, how, how did you spend the pandemic? Where were you? Uh, I was, well, I, I have a um, 220 acres just outside of Newcastle. Oh, uh, beautiful. So, so I spent a huge chunk of that time. Um, mate, I, I I built my own orchard fence and, um, you know, tables and chairs. And, of course you did. <laughs> yeah. Course you did. I, I wish that there was a – I wish that I could have done the best reality TV show. Like people saw me cutting down trees and stripping off bark and I'm climbing and I made this cubby house for my kids and I'm dangling off a tree two metres high trying to put a strainer into the ground with my young fellow who was, who was only – three or four foot, no, he was probably four or five. He's handing me up a saw or a nail or a hammer and <laughs> it would have made it would have made great TV. This is Confusing. the problem with being yeah, with being an, an overachiever like you who's so self-sufficient, you, you know, uh, I just think uh, now you just have to do everything because uh, you don't have it in you to actually allow other people to do anything for you. If it was me, I'd just be sitting on my fat ass having, <laughs> having a glass of lemonade or a beer and watching other people do my work for me. But you're like, I'm Kurt. I can do everything. I'm going to be <laughs> lopping down the tree from two yeah. metres up. You know what? I do not do nothing very well. Um, no. I get just, that impression about you. Yeah, it. Um, I, I love just, doing nothing. I love doing yeah, nothing. Well, I can do it for limited periods of time, but it's just ingrained in me that I actually I do more when I do more. I, I kind of I feel like I, I feel that is my kind of natural state is to be is to be moving, mm. um, and. I did, however, I did pick up this. Um, I'm not sure whether you're familiar with it, but I have got a taste for gin and tonic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm familiar with that particular drink. I once had oh, a very okay. good, very strong taste for uh, gin and tonic as well. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, you know what? After racing for 25 years, I, I kind of, I don't know, there's, there's something, I think there might be something to this. This, uh, <laughs> this this gin and thing. tonic thing, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had a little bit too much gin and tonic, and then during the pandemic, I was like, "Hmm, I'm either going to turn into a fat drunk, or I'm going to start working out and not not drinking." So now I don't drink, and I'm a bit, I'm I'm fitter. I feel like the pandemic went that way, especially for able-bodied people, where it was like, you know, we're either just going to sit around and just indulge our worst instincts, or we're actually going to get up and up and about. And uh, so I, I've spent the first year of the pandemic putting on about uh, uh, 10 kilos and then the second year of the pandemic taking 20 kilos off <laughs> and cutting down on the gin and tonics. Well, uh, I, I did the exact opposite. So there we, there we there go. go. There you go. There you go, you shameless drunk. Uh, <laughs> do you want to tell, 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 tell people um, who might not be uh, familiar with you or who might not be in Australia, this is your opportunity. You can get bashful after this, but just boast for a second about what, about what the highlights of your, uh, of your athletic achievements are. 
Um, I, I just touch on the greatest hits. I feel like yeah. this is for, for yeah, the it's next a long conversation. Seconds. I know <laughs> <laughs> for the next thirty yeah. seconds, this is good for these greatest hits. <laughs> right. um, look, I I won uh, I won thirteen Paralympic medals, three of them gold. Uh, uh, two of them were the marathons in Athens and Beijing in two thousand and four and eight. Uh, one of them was the five k in two thousand and four. I podiumed on four consecutive times in both the five thousand meters and the marathon in the wheelchairs from Athens all the way to Rio. Uh, one raced seventy two marathons, one forty two of them, including New York, Chicago, London, uh, uh, Chicago, and New York were 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 five time. Uh, five-time winners, um, and yeah, that's probably that's probably it. Just uh, yeah, raced raced wheelchairs for twenty-five years and benefited greatly for your audience in the in the US. Benefited greatly oh. from the the culture over there that really did embrace wheelchair racing as uh, as as a, a, a jewel, as a as something that is valued, and spent huge chunks of my life kind of learning about. The professional sport of wheelchair racing while while traveling around the the US and Europe. When you say it all all like that, it sounds like you're really up yourself. <laughs> you <jerk. laughs> You know what? Hey, so my family talk about big noting yourself. I mean, have a little humility <laughs> for Christ's sake. My family, the, the the highest compliment in the world in our family is pretty much you did all right. You know, you did all right, <laughs> yeah. fella. Yeah, um, that's right. That's very Aussie, though, isn't it? Well, part of me does think we need more Muhammad Ali in this country. Like we right. need a little bit of uh, that confidence and that style that 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 we don't see very often. But mm. then we see the opposite of that, and we see those Australian champions who are like we see Ash Barty, and there is no person in the world who I am more proud of displaying what it is to be an Australian than Ash Barty. So that just confirms to me, although inside I do think that even if it's just internally we could have a bit of Muhammad Ali, yeah, we are externally the thing that I love. We are Ash, the, the world number one who loves to have a beer at the cricket, who will sign off as number one because there is something in the world that she wants to do that is completely different to the to the glamorous, you know, high-paid lifestyle that world number one in tennis is able to give you, will turn the back on it because the lifestyle that she wants is in the other direction. Yeah. Do you ever think about that? Uh, mate, I, I knew when I wanted to go and it was, it was obvious to me. Um, well, yeah, you say yeah. when you wanted to go, but you're still dangling from a from a tree two meters up, uh, lopping logs off, and doing all, <laughs> all the charity stuff that you're doing, and doing all the TV stuff that you're doing. Uh, it's not you're not living yeah. a quiet life. No, mate, I will never. I, I it's I, I like I said, I think my natural state is somebody is someone that 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 runs quick. You know, um, I I enjoy having. I enjoy finding a pathway and just following it as fast and as far as I possibly can. Uh, the, the, mm. the thought of the thought of stopping anything is just not it, it's 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 not in me. Uh, you know, I'll never retire. I'll never. I, I retired from wheelchair racing, but alongside that wheelchair racing, there is a thousand things that I loved. In fact, the wheelchair racing was probably in the last few years. It 
was secondary to all the other things that were happening. It just really? allowed me a chance to do a, you know, to do a few years where I could thank the people that, that got me to where I was. But the, the real enjoyment was happening outside of that already. And, and I could see that pathway and it's like I wanted to be there. It's just like I had to finish a few things off before I could do it. Um, mm. But it's funny that you make the difference between Australians and Americans on that as well. I mean, I've always noticed that that too. That Americans, you know, I, I moved to America, and you know, you'd say, you'd ask someone, "Oh, is the burger joint down the road any good?" And they'd say, "Oh my God, it's the most amazing burger! They're awesome! This is the <laughs> best thing I've ever had in my entire life." And uh, you know, in Australia, you could go to a three Michelin star restaurant. You know, you could go to one of the best restaurants in the world and ask an Aussie how it was, and they go, "Yeah, it's all right." And you go, <laughs> and that means it's the best thing they've ever eaten in their entire lives. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah. Uh, when you say that it was sort of welcome when you were in America to see the amount of, um, I suppose, hype or um, or respect that they had for wheelchair racing, did that? What did that mean to you? Oh, mate, well, we were still over here. We were still fighting to actually get an entry to the race. The winners of the the wheelchair marathons were being celebrated as, you know. If, and if not equal to their non-disabled peers, there was a there was a recognition that there was a pathway that we were going on over there that celebrated the the excellence of what we could bring to the table, uh, and and we were again I was turning up to marathons in Australia even in the in the early two thousands told that I I couldn't race um, told that you know that. Even after I'd entered, it was like this isn't this isn't for you. You're a danger. Uh, and one of the things that we really found, I think that culturally in Australia we do disability really well. Like we have a really robust conversation around disability, and we we figure it out, you know. Um, but in the US, they have a Disability Discrimination Act, and that that means that if I if if I would turn up to a marathon and they 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 wouldn't allow me to even take part I feel like I'd be a major shareholder of that marathon by the end of the day right. or if I if I turned up to <laughs> if I turned up to a flight and they and they said you're not allowed to enter because you're the third person in a wheelchair to check in which is still still the ability of an airline in Australia that really? if I turn up my ticket can be cancelled because I'm considered an OHNS risk the third wheelchair that's to Occupational Inter- health and safety for uh, non-Australians. Yeah, right. So you might endanger the other passengers uh, with your well, maybe a, equipment. I may be a danger to the staff to 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 get me to exit that airline if there's an emergency. Even though, like, the, the question is never given or, or, or asked. It's never asked, will you even need help? to get off this flight in the case of an mm. emergency. It's you're just like, I'm, more... a, I'm actually an Olympian, so I'm probably going to be okay. Like, I'll be dragging you guys out. I'll be lopping lumber and, uh, you know, helping out the flight attendants. If, well, if many, goes down. many, many people in wheelchairs, if it's an emergency, they will crawl and drag and do what they need to to get off this flight. There yeah. will be many other people who aren't in wheelchairs who, who may have highly anxious uh, uh, lives, who, who may be physically in physically in worse shape than the person with a disability is. They might, they might be really fat. That could be the be case. They, they may be they may be more likely to have a heart attack than this, you know, 20-year-old person in a wheelchair who is seen 
to be this fragile thing. But in the reality, it's quite robust with their, pro- with their approach to life, but has never actually got to define their life because this wheelchair takes over over everything, you know? is, is so, that, Kurt, is that a pre? Is that a problem of of cultural preconceptions, or is that a problem of like legal rules? I mean, if you didn't have a, occupational health and safety rules, then presumably a common sense, uh, you know, flight attendant or check in agent would be able to say, "Oh, go on, go on, get on the plane." Um, but if they have to, you know, abide by, well, you know, we'll have to make sure that there are only, uh, you know, two people in wheelchairs on the on each flight. Uh, then maybe that causes more problems than it creates, than it helps. I love this country. I think that we are very, um, there, there is so much great about the people and the culture, but sometimes we see a rule and we don't know how to break it, even if it's the wrong rule. We even love if a it's, rule. Aussies mm, love a rule. Man. We love a rule much more than uh, than many cultures. I mean, and people, we have this, we've export, we've successfully exported this image to the rest of the world that Aussies are these crocodile Dundee characters who are in the <laughs> outback, who are, you know, wrestling crocodiles and who don't care about anything. But you actually come here, we all drive at precisely the speed limit. We all, you know, if a rule comes in, then, you know, during the pandemic, we don't break the rules. You don't have, you know, fights over masks on aeroplanes like they do in the States. You don't have, a, you know, a libertarian frontier strain. Everyone's very, you know, well, we all know what the rules are and we're all going to abide by them. And sometimes that can get you caught up in just a, a thicket of, you know, bureaucratic nonsense. You try to call Centrelink or something and you wait on hold and then they'll be like, well, actually, you filled out section 14D subsection, uh, you know, 5 uh, incorrectly when you added the uh, the CRN of your second child and then that was uh, got, accidentally got linked <laughs> to the wrong, you know, so now you have to go through the portal and then do this and then you have to download the verification, the authenticator app in order to go back and you go, oh, I don't, you know, come on, let me live, I'm, li- I'm trying to live a life here. What am I can doing? In the States, people will just blow straight through it and be like, I haven't filed my taxes in 15 years and, you know, the IRS is too compl- confused and bungling to even know that you haven't done it. Um, yeah. I do find I do find that. But so does that then redound poor, especially poorly to you? Well, I'll add to that 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 when it comes to the there there is pockets of um, of this country that is wild and free and 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 amazing and crazy and and you've got to hold on to your seats. It's called Far North Queensland and big chunks of Northern Territory and WA when you get into the Yeah, and there are 13 people real. who live there. There are only 13. <laughs> it's real wild country, though. <laughs> 24 um, million, uh, you know, 999,987 <laughs> people who don't live there. <laughs> yeah, but when you go there, it's pretty fun. Um, <laughs> look, what it really comes down to is that when it, when the US has a disability discrimination act that requires the uh, the the company to prove that they are not discriminating against you. In Australia, we don't have that. We have to prove that the company is discriminating against us. So that means when we take a case to a to 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 try and say that we are discriminated against, we are going against multi billion dollar companies who can afford whatever they can afford to protect their bottom line. And our airline industry, in particular, it's like a protected species. That's not. Uh, there are parts of that air, that airline industry that it's it's not a consumer business. That is almost a national security business that mm. you do not you do not cross. Which makes 
which makes travel for people in wheelchairs just complicated in this country. Right. And, well, we also and, have a duopoly where there's, you know, there's there's one huge airline that used to be owned by the government and was uh, was privatised and then, you know, basically one major competitor. Uh, and it's also not great in the States where they really only have four gigantic airlines and then a bunch of other smaller ones. But it's not like in Europe where you've got, you know, just a, a tonne of different airlines. What's it like in Europe? Uh, no, it's, it's US and the Europe, I feel, every single time I catch a plane in Australia, I feel nervous. Mm. And and I am my strongest advocate, right? Like I I, I meet the world and, and, and I, I, like I said before, I have a very robust kind of approach to everything. But every single time I go to travel in Australia, I'm nervous that is this the time that, again, they say that I'm a third person, that, that they will try and take my wheelchair off me at check-in, that they will that they will do all of these things that you've experienced over time. In the US and Europe, I have none of that anxiety. I get to travel and be a father. I get to travel and be a, a you know, a, a, a husband or a, or a brother or a co-worker without the anxiety that, that air travel in Australia particularly has on us. Can't they and, just and, allocate the number of seats that they sell to, to people with special needs? You know what they could they could do a thousand different things, but it, I think that they've they've simplified the rules, they've simplified the the policies so that it can just be in and out, and it's easier to say no than to adjust. And it's been defended, and it's it's it is it is unfortunately of all the of all the battles that are uh, that that that's kind of been before us, whether it's my generation or the generations before, um, that one is still ongoing, but. And when and you buy a ticket, sorry for my ignorance, but when you buy a ticket, isn't there a box that you can check can check saying, uh, you know, that uh, this person has special needs or this person is in a wheelchair or whatever? And couldn't they just say, like, if they're, if they're selling five seats like that and they know that they're only going to allow two on the plane and it's just first come, first serve, and then they're going to boot everybody else off, that doesn't seem like a, a system that's so, well thought out. Or do you not put it in when you when you're booking the ticket? Do they not know until you show up? Some t- some people may mistakenly not put it in and they just show up. Uh, I've put it in, and then a week later, I've had a phone call to say that you are the third person in a wheelchair that has brought this ticket. We're now five days away from travelling. Uh, we're going to put you on the next flight that only has one person who has clicked that button, and that is mm. four days later. Um, and, and, and I've went to do that around Christmas. My family, I had two little kids, my partner, my mum, my dad were flying on this flight. My ticket was cancelled um, because there was considered to be two other people already already booked in. Um, so I had to change, change, go from Newcastle, which is somewhat of a regional centre, um, into Sydney to fly to the destination for Christmas. And my family yeah. couldn't because we couldn't get all the tickets on there. So they got on this flight and there was not one other person in a wheelchair there. There were two, <laughs> there were, there were two elderly people who clicked on this special assistance button, yet requiring such little special assistance that it, it should not have qualified. But that is right. the, the, like those, those, those in interactions and it, it's it's nonsense it, it's not logical but they're the sort of battles that people with disabilities are, are fighting on a day-to-day basis and I and I would say that there are many occasions where people with disabilities our lives are defined by the people that don't have disabilities that have never had disabilities, but they look on disability and they perceive and try and get their head around what they would do if they were in this situation. Oh my mm. God, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to cope if I was in a wheelchair. I would want, you know, all the assistance in the world. <laughs> and the reality yeah. is that if you land in that situation, you do what you've got to. 
because there is no yeah. alternative. And, well, also, and they don't have the experience. Of course, you wouldn't be able to handle it because you're an able-bodied fuckwit. Like I've been living in a wheelchair all my life. I'm, I, you know, don't, don't tell me what you wouldn't be able to do if you were in my position. Look at what I do in my position. Or, or just ask. Just ask. Be like, hey, mate, how can I help? You know, like how can I? How can I? How can I be of assistance? How can I make this journey easy for you? And you might get the response. You know what, mate? You can make it easy. You already have because I get to tell you right now. Bugger off. You know, mm. I'm good. I can do this thing on my own, and uh, I, I always find that that's always the best. Uh, that's always the best uh, way to approach it. And anything. so, just before we get away, get away from aeroplanes, what happens in the US and Europe if uh, you know twelve people have all booked on the same flight and they all show up in wheelchairs? Is there a, what what happens logistically? Well, I know that if I would turn up into the US, there is no way that I get turned back. UX actually have a great system where the first wheelchair is stored on board. The second wheelchair is potentially stored on board if there is space. Every wheelchair after that will be um, uh, tagged, gate checked, put into the back of the plane, brought up on arrival, and it is smooth and amazing. Um, wow. It, it, and do, so you have a, do you have a, a special narrow wheelchair to get onto the get down the aisle of a plane? How does that work? So I've actually made my chair. Every time I'd go over, there's a wheelchair manufacturer in Florida that I would uh, spend some time with and make my chair specifically for me. And I made right. it so it's seven kilos, so it's as light as hand luggage, and, mm. it, and it deconstructs and fits in the overhead baggage. So when I'm in Amazing. the US, I never even check my chair in. In Europe, I never even check my chair in. I fly oh. down the aisle, I throw the chair in the overhead baggage, and I am on my way. Uh, and I made it that way because... Of the, I, I, I was hoping that I could try and do something similar in Australia, but there was just no, there's just no space for that. So the the counter argument against laws like America's is, uh, you know, I know people who have tried to set up, uh, you know, little restaurants in California, uh, or they've, uh, you know, they've wanted to expand a little bit, and then there's this thicket of regulations that they have to go through. So there are fire codes that are very onerous. There's this, there's that, and one of them is the Americans with Disability Act, which a lot of small business people whinge about because they'll go, you know, I just all I wanted to do was just extend out onto the onto the pavement here so that people could sit out there. But in order to do so, I'm going to need to build a bloody great wheelchair ramp that goes all the way around, uh, you know, and I don't have the money to do that and, I don't, and it's not actually necessary. But, again, coming back to the rules, the rules are the rules and you're going to have to, well, what if someone who was, you know, uh, who was severely handicapped was was trying to come in, and then they, you know, they needed. They're like, what do they? What, what do we need? Do we need to build a big slingshot to be able to fly them up, and you know, a hole in the roof to be able to trampoline and everything? Come on, I'm just trying to have a cafe here. This is this is too difficult. Uh, what do you say to those people? Oh, look! If we're if if we're all annoyed at each other a little bit in community, we're probably doing something right. And I and I say <laughs> that because you know, like even in the disability community, I run over the 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 little dots for those who are visually impaired on the roads, and it shakes my kidneys. And I find it pretty bloody tough to push. You know the the um. The, the bumps that are there. Yeah, in Australia, are, there are yeah there are little ridges, uh, little raised ridges uh, along the, the pavement, the sidewalk, so that uh, people who are visually impaired don't walk straight onto the road. They can feel it on their feet, right? Co correct. Some amputees may not like the fact that there are long ramps to get up to get into a building. They may prefer that there is actually steps. It's easier. Uh, you know, there, there, there is this... There is this acceptance that we're going to go through a bit of difficulty to make sure that everybody gets to have a bit of a, a, a bit of an experience in life. And, and I know that that is frustrating sometimes to be able to sit down and take on the complex world of disability. But 
when you get through that annoyance, it stops the absolute disruption of that person's entire life. Not a, not a frustration. It is an absolute disruption. If I turn up to a space and I can't get through, it's not an annoyance. It often means I've got to go home. Or if I turn up to a space and my children are, who are non-disabled, if they can enter into the space, and I can't be a father past that point, then my life is not only defined to me, but it's defined to my kids that their father mm. is less. And mm. my my partner, or if it is my coworker, or if it is my 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 junior in my workspace. So we're not we're, we are talking about things like like, like regulation as a frustration, and I completely understand that it is a frustration because there is this really complex thing that we're trying to create regulation to to bring in, and it does get messy in there. But again, we're not dealing with the frustration to uh, to to um, help another person's frustration. We're doing it to stop somebody from completely being excluded from a, a life experience. And, mm. and I think a bit of frustration is actually worth doing to get through to that point. And once There's it's another- done, usually it's done. Like it is, it is finished. Rather than it being a, a, a barrier forever, once you've invested the time and energy to create a space that is accessible to everyone, that's accessible to everyone forever. That particular space is, but everything else that then subsequently needs to be done also needs to uh, needs to comply with the rules. Like there's a, I read a, a big piece, I think it was in Esquire or Vanity Fair about this couple who, or the New Yorker or something. There was this, there's a couple in uh, California who've taken it upon themselves to be disability rights uh, litigators, and uh, they'll go around to uh, to they'll call a place in advance and they'll say, oh, you know, we have uh, unique unique needs. The place will say, yep, of course we comply with the Americans with Disability Act. And um, they go they go around. They're a married couple, and they'll show up at a at a place, uh, and then they'll start measuring exactly you know how oh, no. how how far it is. Something, <laughs> and if it's a, if it's a millimeter out, then they stage some sort of uh, upset. You know, one of them will fall over, or one of them will uh, br- drop a glass, or something like that. Then they've got the same high flying lawyer, and they sue these small businesses and the small business, and and they go around and they think they're doing God's work basically because they're making sure that compliance is is up to scratch. But of course, you know the small businesses are saying, look, if you need us to comply to the letter, then there should then the regulator themselves should be. I don't know, doing spot checks and just helping us to make sure that we're complying. Because if you read the, you know, hundred pages of the of the legislation, we're, we're not going to get every single little thing right. But instead of just being giving a tap on the shoulder and say, "Hey, can you fix this? Can you fix that?" They're having to pay lawyers to go to court, and they're ending, ending up being bankrupted because then there are these ten million dollar, you know, payouts and all this sort of jazz from the emotional trauma from when the person dropped the cup because the, you know, the the thing was one millimeter out to to code, and the re- the backlash then is from people saying oh this whole thing is bloody stupid uh you know uh you know if if uh, if you have special needs then that's unfortunate but life sort of sucks for everybody everybody's got particular challenges and if you can't do this then well i can't do that either so you got to sort of suck it up and cop it well bring that on like let's have that conversation and and let's see who who wins the battle in the court and in the you know in that in that in that 
common square. Uh, and the point that you make is kind of like the point on everything, that that those two individuals, say, if they are going around and they are measuring millimetre by millimetre, they've probably seen a, a politician talking about how they want to reduce the Disability Discrimination Act, that we need to get rid of regulation. And because they see somebody going to the far, the, you know, the, the fringe on that way, we see this we see this push towards the other direction and and does that allow to be that to be you know bring the middle closer to where it should be or does it just create a fight that will continue to go and just and just cause disruption and distrust and and you know i personally think that we need people to push barriers we need people to push in a direction and then you allow people to go into the the middle space and figure and figure something out in there um mm. how, how do you reckon that would go in australia though like what do you think well i mean i think we're just generally thank goodness a bit less extreme on everything than americans are you know you can you can take any measurement that you want and that has good upsides you know the civil rights movement of the 1960s was more fierce in america uh, and it put an end to Jim Crow. I mean, their political system is more extreme. You know, no one, li- someone like Obama could never have become the leader of a parliamentary democracy like Australia, uh, but someone like Trump also couldn't. Um, so, you, you, you know, you take the good with the bad, and I, I just think they get, you know, the, the culture wars at the moment in terms of, uh, you know, their cancel culture and their hysteria around, uh, I don't know, gender pronouns or whatever it might be, and then the backlash from the right on, like, banning school books that mention gay parents and stuff there's just a lot more roiling kind of antagonism over there which i think we don't have thankfully but i think you're right that to put your finger on the fact that you know each extreme then empowers the other extreme and i think when you're talking about your life and your ability as you say to be a father to your kids and your ability to just participate in civil society then the last thing you want to do is turn that into a toxic... I mean, it's the same with, like, LGBTQI plus issues and stuff like that and, you know, transgender in transgender people in sports and stuff. Like, the more it becomes a political football for the bystanders to argue about, the worse it sort of is for everybody. And if we can turn the temperature down a bit and just have have technocratic wonks figure all this stuff out <laughs> and remove ourselves from the debate, uh, then I think the better we end up being. See, a part of me also wonders, though, when it comes to particularly, if we're talking about small business, say, uh, in 19, I think it was 1991, in Australia, we had a Prime Minister called Bob Hawke, who said that every building will be accessible to every every person, every child that wishes to enter it in 10 years. Now, business could have started, every every business could have started uh, putting money as uh, money away to start to prepare for this regulation. Instead, nine years later, everyone was terrified and it was pushed out another 10 years and then another right. 10 years. Right. And now we're still sitting here going past places that are not accessible. Like when are we going to stop to stop fighting a battle as if it's in the moment and start actually recognising that this is this is something that we should have been doing for three decades, four so decades. So what is the law now, Kurt? Is, is there, I mean, pardon my ignorance, but I assumed that there would now be some kind of public accommodations requirement that if you are a public, uh, you know, if you're open to the public, that that has to be accessible to everybody. Is that not the case? Walk down the street and see how many uh, how many shops that you pass that have steps in front of it. Yeah. Like as soon as you start seeing it, you start seeing it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I think that it is like a, 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 a company has to make reasonable adjustments and, and has to be, uh, but, but the, the accountability side of that just is not there in Australia. So we do see in the US, you do see those far-flung stories of just what what seem to be completely unreasonable uh, interactions with community. But dear bloody God, that makes my life easier. It's funny, isn't it? I mean, Americans like to, again, this is almost like the flip side of the illusion that Australians have been able to export about themselves. Americans have been able to export this idea about themselves that they're, they're capitalist and, uh, you know, they're, they're raw and tooth and claw and, uh, you know, they're a place that is, uh, that is the least sort of socialistic of all the Western democracies. But in actual fact, when you live there, I mean, if you go to a post office it feels like you're in the soviet union if you go and try to get your driver's <laughs> license renewed it feels like you're in moscow in the 1950s you know there are these incredibly heavily unionized industries uh, especially government bureaucracies uh, where people walk at the pace of an obese sloth to, to go from one filing cabinet to another uh, and uh, and on the, that's the downside of it. And then on the upside of it, you do have these very um, you know very strict rules about stuff like that that does make people's lives easier. And uh, and here maybe part of our sort of I don't know part of our attitude towards things. I, I can't really reconcile Australians' obedience with our lack of willingness to put rules in place to make lo- to make the life of people like you easier. But um, but certainly in America, it's it's not the case that America is just this freewheeling, let it go, business can do whatever it wants to, uh, kind of corporate paradise. Yeah, it does my head in a little bit too. <laughs> yeah, but I, yeah. I, I totally, I love that joint. That is, the US is so complicated and it's so just, it is so. It is such a. You know, like in Australia, we draw. We we might we might paint a picture. Um, it's like the US paints this picture, and it is expanded on every edge, where it includes mm. so much just uh, uh, intensity in everything that it does. And over the last couple of years, it's the first couple of years that I haven't been there for since ninety three, and. Yeah, there, there, there is just so much about that place that I think is entertaining and and out there and full of energy. But there is also a hardship there that is like out of control as well. And, yeah, um, totally. Yeah, totally. I've seen I've seen poverty in the states that's unlike anything I've seen anywhere in the world, including in the developing world. Because in the developing world, at least everyone is sort of on the same. You know, you walk through a slum in Mumbai and at least everybody, that's their life and they're operating within a context. I mean, it's awful, but they're operating within a context in which things are set up for them to be able to function somewhat. Their community functions in that, uh, you know, at that state of development and that state of resources. And their families still stay together and their, you know, their lives still move on. Um, but in places where Western civilization has just broken down altogether, like, I mean, I went through, I went on a drive through New Orleans not long after it was demolished uh, by the hurricane and, uh, you know, about 18 months later and, um, you know, there are people living in conditions where there's a total breakdown, a total breakdown of, of family, community, law and order, structure. It's chaos. It's like something, you know, it's like something I've never seen in, in Africa or Asia. Mate, whenever you, whenever you, um, whenever you travel, I think that disability tells a really 
interesting story, like a really complicated story. Uh, like I've crawled into places where you have to crawl in to get in there. And the experience with disability is one of the most challenging things that I've ever seen. Like right now, wherever you zoom into, whatever part of the world, you go into the most, you know, hidden, um, challenging, tiny little village in some, you know, country that the tourist track misses, no matter how vulnerable the community gets, there's always a person with a disability there, exponentially more vulnerable, sitting in the dirt. And we have this huge variation of existence now. The gold medals of the Paralympic Games, where we are the third the third biggest multi-sport event in the world, built over the last 60 years. And then our community, well, two-thirds of the world who require a wheelchair don't even have one, you know. So yeah. we have this really progressed community that is that is kind of leaving another one behind. And so mm. it's a really challenging, it's a really challenging part of this world. What places have you crawled into? Mate, I've crawled into, the, the ones that I've crawled into is there's, there's, uh, there's a township, a community in, in uh, it's called Makuru, just on the expo, outskirts of, uh, of Nairobi. Um, there's a couple of little great schools in there where uh, uh, the Rubin Centre that educates 1,800 children that has a lot of Australian and there were US donors. Um, and I've got about 80 kids with disabilities in there in the Kurt Fernley Centre. And it was one of the, you know, like when the US, we saw uh, foreign aid be cut in, um, I think it was 2017, you know, and Months after that, you see just the flower coming from USAID stop, you know, like we see this tiny little percentage of uh, our, our GDP reduced out of foreign aid and then you see 80 or 100 or 1,800 children just stop getting mm. a meal. Um, I've crawled into PNG where um, Papua New Guinea, which is, you know, it's a three-hour flight from Australia, but it's one of the most, it's one of the most... It's one of the hardest communities, you know, that I've that I've seen. Mm. I've uh, not crawled into, but been invited into Yarmouk refugee camp in the years before it was flattened, and met with teachers and principals to encourage the participation and the and to to highlight the the need to have all variation of child within their classroom. You know that these these children can't be isolated with mum and dad because an isolated childhood means to an isolated and, and a life means to an early death it means to mm. a greater risk of marginalization and predatory behavior on them and um yeah I, I, the, whatever kind of um whenever i try and whenever i find out about a program that's doing great stuff in education or wanting to um, bring kids with disabilities into education I, I try and do whatever i can to if i can play a part i will um, I am a teacher, I'm a high school teacher, and I grew up crawling around the bush in Karkor. Uh, it's right in the central central part of New South Wales in Australia. It's um, And 
even in Australia, we have huge isolation. Like we, we talk about how the majority of people by far, what, we're 25 million people, you say, and 24 million of them are in metropolitan centres around the coast. <laughs> if you go inside, like I grew up, there was no concrete. You know, there was, right. no, there was no asphalt or bitumen. I grew up crawling for the first decade of my life. And, and I was valued and welcomed as I was. You know, like I was welcomed into community, crawling around my school. There was no hesitation. There was no awkward looks. I was in a school of 16 people and they were all my family and, and, and they <laughs> loved me and they welcomed me and, and, and I felt like I could be who I was. But there was an isolation in the fact that my hands were in the dirt and everybody else was walking around. Mm. And still to this day, there are huge chunks of my community that are still in the dirt and will not be able to leave it unless there is just a complete, well, I, I actually, the, the reality is that when I go and work in these spaces is that I know I can't, I, it may not change for everybody and there may be people still crawling around in the dirt isolated in 100 or 200 years from now. But when you go into these spaces, you accept that you can do whatever you can do to change that one moment, mm. and um, and I love that. That's been when you say, Kurt. When you say there are huge chunks of your community, uh, and use that that term community, I'm interested in that because when did that sense of you being, I guess, a representative of a a community evolve? Like I, I, I'm, I always have difficulty with that community. So, like, I'm married to a guy, and my husband will. He'll talk about, you know, the LGBTQI plus community and he'll be including in that, you know, some genderqueer person on the other side of the world who uh, has, who we've never met, who has nothing in common with us. Uh, I have much more in common with my straight work colleagues and my friends here than I do with that person. Um, you know, my grandparents were also Holocaust survivors and so they were very passionate about their Jewishness and about the legacy of, you know, oppression that our people have suffered for thousands of years. And I also think, you know what, I don't like what Israel has become. I don't like what they're doing. I don't really feel any affinity for the Jewish community. I mean, I'm ethnically Jewish, I guess, but I mean, I don't want to think about that community because I have much more in common, I think, with, you know, someone who's struggling in Palestine just emotionally, just empathically than I do with like world Jewry. And <laughs> so I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy about like community uh, when it's used as a way of trying to force us into kind of tribes who are competing over the scraps of a finite pie i'd much rather sort of think about us as individuals and trying to come together and have, have and find whatever common ground we can but obviously there's a utility in people thinking about community because otherwise you know communities who suffer unique problems don't have anyone to speak on their behalf apart from people inside their quote-unquote community when did you start using that term how does it relate to you a couple of couple of i guess um, a couple of moments that I think enhanced it. One of them was when, so I grew up not seeing any other person with a disability until I was 12 or 13. Um, there were no people in wheelchairs at my school. Uh, like I said, I was in a school of 16 people for the first six years, um, seven years, and then high school, it was to a school of 300 people, but still I just did not see anyone in a chair unless I was at a hospital and then they were sick and I thought, well, I must be the only person in a wheelchair that's not sick. I, and then I found the Paralympic world and um, 
our first Paralympian, Australian Paralympian, is Uncle Kevin Coombs. He's an Indigenous guy. Um, and we all know him as uncle and we knew all of the the other um, first Paralympians as uncles and aunties and they welcomed us into the community and they just, they just, they built us, you know, like they, they taught me what it is to be a person in a wheelchair. I remember uh, Michael Callahan and Michael would, he was he, a wheelchair basketball player for the Australian wheelchair basketball team. He, he saw me come out and he grabbed me in the chair and he said, get rid of those handlebars and get rid of those brakes. And I'm 12 and he says, nobody should push you. Only you choose where you go and how you go. And I went home and I hacked them off with a hacksaw. And then <laughs> they, they, and then I get Jeff Adams, a wheelchair racer, world champion out of, out of Canada. He allowed me to live in his house for a month on end to learn what it is to be a wheelchair racer. Louise Savage, Australia's greatest Paralympian, she would pick me up at the airport when I would fly on a regional airline down to Sydney or the train station. She would feed me and she would just give me a taste of what the life was like that I was entering into. Chantelle Petticler from Canada, Tenny Gray Thompson from the UK. If that's not community and family, I don't know what is. And then when I started to work with with, with disability in in the developing world, I, I will crawl into that Makuru uh, township with two million people, and I will crawl past you know a thousand people, and I will sit in the house of a kid with a disability who will look at me, and that child will have as much hunger and desire as I have ever had, and that kid sees me as their family because it's the first time that they have seen somebody in the world that looks like them. And I was there. You know, I was there when I was, I was 12 years old. So when I think about community, this, isn't, this, is my, this is my family because there is as much care and love and support in that community as I have felt from my extremely loving and caring mother and father and brothers and sisters. And, and isn't that what we do with our, with our brothers and sisters? Like we look at them. And we have a care and an understanding of where they want to be and who they want to be. And that is the exact same feeling that I felt when I was 12 with Uncle Kevin or, or 18 with Jeff Adams or, or 21 with Tenny Gray Thompson, uh, who, who is the UK's greatest Paralympian as well, or when I was 29 sitting in one of the towns on the Kokoda track looking at a kid that had a desire to have more in his life and saw it for the very first time when I was sitting next to him looking back. So mm. if it's not community, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if there's a word there that better describes it. And what was the community like in the town where you grew up? You mentioned Kakor. You were, um, this is about 50 k's from Bathurst in the central west of New South Wales, a town of what? It has a couple of hundred people now. I don't know how many people it had back then. Uh, 201 I, probably. Two, <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, they're ruining the day they lost you, mate. They're like, oh, <laughs> we had it so good until he buggered off. Um, <laughs> and what were things like when you were like in primary school, when you're five, six, seven? Um, how were you getting around? You say you were crawling around. Were you literally crawling around? Did you have a wheelchair? What was, uh, you know, who were your friends? What was it like? Yeah, I had, um, I, I, I had a wheelchair. I got a wheelchair when I was about, uh, I got my first wheelchair when I was four or five. 
and I threw it in uh, a gully at home because it was no a gully is like a I don't know a ditch. it was a ditch <laughs> yeah because it was no good for me. it was no good like it was the biggest wheelchair that I'd ever seen it's bigger than any wheelchair I've had since but it was just a wheelchair give him a wheelchair and 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 that'll do uh, mm. and that was no good for a four or five year old kid I wanted to be crawling I wanted to be moving I wanted to feel like I was a sibling to my brothers and sisters I wanted to be a, you know a neighbor I wanted to get my hands dirty you know and and we had we lived in a house that wasn't accessible. <laughs> no, that's a terrible. That's a funny yeah. thing to talk the, about. The Californian uh, Americans with a Disability <laughs> Act wheelchair ramp had not yet been installed <laughs> on every home in Kakor. Well, mum and dad they they were not. Uh, my dad was a labourer. My mum was looking after five kids, and the ability to make home upgrades was just it just wasn't it wasn't on the cards. Um, mm. But we had concrete for about 10, maybe 15 metres from the front door to the front gate. Um, so that was all that the wheelchair would go to. If I wanted to go past that, I crawled. And so I crawled. Uh, I did, when I got into school, I started to use my wheelchair a bit more. Um, the, 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 principal, the principal actually did concrete a lot of paths around the school. He, in 1985, I was... I was welcomed into Kharkov Public at the objections of the Department of Education at that point in time. In 1985, again, Australia's every country's on its own journey when it comes to disability. But in 85, I was still meant to be segregated and isolated in in uh, in, in special education or institutionalisation. The Jesus. principal, the, yeah, they would sit really? down. Even though you're cognitively exactly the same, they yeah, they, you're not allowed to learn. You're not allowed to learn with other. Kids? There was a meeting in my in my mother and father's kitchen where they wanted to transport me to Orange daily for school. And my mother and father couldn't afford to transport me daily in there. How far and was they, Orange? Orange is only about 50 minutes to an hour away. But right. every single day, like I said, we weren't. We didn't. We we were we were we were living in two hours round trip. Yeah, just picking up. Yeah. Yeah. So so that wasn't an option. They offered institutionalisation, so I could actually stay there. Um, But my principal on that same day walked into my mum and dad's house, and he said that my mum and dad needed to ignore that conversation. He would take me into that school. He would then concrete parts of me so I could get around the school. I use, I think of it as the, the ramp is the artery that got me around the school. Once I got to the point, I crawled. That was my capillaries. You know, that was the, yeah. the way that I would engage once I got to that space. But he cemented that school in the Christmas holidays out of his own money. He rebelled against his bosses because he knew it was right. It took them six months to find out that I was actually in the school. By that stage, I was welcomed and I was a valued part of the school. So they're not going to they're not going to take me out. Mm. So from there, I was just valued and welcomed whatever way I wanted to get around. I would crawl and do the do the cross country. I would I did high jump and long jump by just crawling <laughs> and throwing my body. It was it was a I grew up in the eighties, but it was probably more a 1950s style of growing mm. up in mm. the in the story of, of disability. Like there would have been advocates in the US demanding for universal accessibility into, you know, into public spaces where 
where I was still falling out of trees and, you know, picking peas mm. out of poo. What an amazing principle. Now, I, in general, I will meet the world as I need to to get through it. And I do think that many people with disabilities, we have this ability to adjust and adapt because we've had to. Like that is just, we've lived in a world that is often not made for us. And so it is adjust, adapt, or not engage. And not engaging isn't an option. So mm. there are what I believe, there are a lot of lessons that disability can bring to every you know, every room, every space. And but in I mean, my that, life in particular, I lean into it big time. That, princi- that principle, Kurt, um, I, I meant the princip- pri- pi- principal, P-A-L, the guy who uh, not the <laughs> I took it as a compliment. The, <laughs> <laughs> the ego's back. There you go. There you go. Ali. yourself again. <laughs> Bloody English language with too many, too many, uh, what is it? What's that called? Uh, I think it's called a metonym. Is it what is that a word that sounds like another word? Anyway, uh, yeah, no, it's a good principle, uh, but it's he was also a good principal, uh, the bloke Maybe who, was a uh, you know, to, for, to stand up against the, you know, the institution and go, we, we're not gonna, we're not gonna ship him off, you know, we're gonna find a way to make it, to make this work. That that to me, that is my aspiration for the way that the for the way that the world gets out of all of the disagreement and strife that we the, and and misunderstandings that we have that we could find a way he's not a member of your community he's he's used his reason and his mind and his empathy and he's sat down probably in a quiet moment after everyone's gone home one day and he's thought to himself in his principal's office what do i do here and he's listened closely to his heart and his mind and he's gone, it doesn't matter that I haven't had this life experience. I know what the I know what needs to be done here. And that kind of cross-community empathy, that cross-community reason, that kind of standing up for people on the basis of what is right and what is logical instead of getting embroiled in uh, tribal warfare, that is sort of what I was pointing to as to being an aspirational goal. Not to demean yeah. the utility of feeling like you're in a, in a community, but, you know, he had bugger all to do with your community and he still stepped up and did the right thing. Yeah, well, I think the actual problem happens when we do put our flag in the ground and say that we are only in this community. You know, that's where, that's where I see problems. Like I'm not just in one community. He is in my community. (laughs) He he is in my family, that other part of my family. Like even in, even in my family, like my literal family, we're a big, we're a big family. There's five siblings in mine, but my dad had 10 kids. They, my dad was one of 10 kids. They all had big families all around it. They are in a hundred different communities. I reckon mm. that even in my community, we're five kids, we probably vote five different ways. <laughs> but I love them more than anything in the world. Yeah. But they don't just have to be in my community. They don't just have to. I want them to be in a hundred communities. I hope my family, like, and I think when we plan our flag and say that I am just in this community right here, this is the one-dimensional approach to life that I'm going to take, I think that there is danger there, huge mm. amounts of danger there, and, and that's where we we need to avoid that, I think. 
It's a, it's a homonym, by the way. Principle, principle, a word that sounds like another word. It just popped into my head. It's right, not a it's, metonym. It's, it's a homonym. Welcome back to Words with Kurt and Josh, <laughs> uh, where we teach just, you all of the obscure <laughs> linguistic terminology. It's just me being up myself, mate. That's all it is. <laughs> principle, principle. They're homonyms. They're words that sound like other words uh, but have different meanings. Um, well, Kurt, I don't want to keep you forever. But, um, it's delightful to talk to you, and I could talk to you all day. What 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 are you what would you say to people who are listening, either able-bodied people or people who are in wheelchairs uh, or, you know, in in the spirit that you've just articulated of being able to reach across boundaries and try to sort of, you know, hail each other and, you know, let's actually, why don't, we, why don't you talk to the person who's listening to this who's able-bodied who thinks, uh, yeah, that all sounds fantastic, I'm totally on your side, good on you, Paralympics, rah, 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 but at the end of the day, you know, uh, life cuts us all different breaks, and if you have the misfortune to be born with special needs, then your life is just by necessity going to be tougher than other people's. Some people are born dumb. Some people are born into poverty. Some people are born with genes that make them really fat. Uh, we don't bend over backwards and reshape our entire societies to accommodate each other. Uh, you know, life works best when it's kind of every man for himself and you do do what you can to be nice to each other. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, the, the chips fall where they may and them's the breaks. Uh, some people are born assholes. I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't expect to win 100% of people and I will never try and convince that person. I will happily go on and live my life and I will make sure that when I get in to f- have this argument in the field of, 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 of public opinion in the town square, I will say that I believe that we are a better place when we're looking out for each other. I believe that we are a better place when every single person gets to buy in to what it is to be an Australian or what it is to be a functioning, valued member of whatever community is over there and there are going to be people would disagree with me mate i get messages on social media that say that i i shouldn't fund a you know a, 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 a program that sports disability because your parents didn't abort you i get that i'm not going to change that person's mind nor do i really want to nobody gets a hundred percent of people agreeing with them i will happily Thank them for their contribution and let them get on their bloody way. In the meantime, I'm going to turn around to the other 99% of people that I believe are reasonable, that I believe are caring, that I believe can actually join and do something good. The other guy, nice to meet you. What's the easiest and simplest thing that people can do, that the the 99% can do? You know what? I think that the best thing that you can do is when you see someone with a disability, Ask him for a coffee. Get to know him. Don't I suppose you mean offer, him, and... offer him a coffee rather than uh, ask him to buy you a coffee. Excuse me. Have you got change for <laughs> a coffee? A coffee? It's no, very you know expensive what I mean? in Sydney like, at the moment. The baristas are would... overcharging so much. <laughs> I would just say that bring people with bring people of all variation into your life, not not as a token thing. Actually, invest in the people around you and make it a meaningful, uh, substantial relationships over a long period of time. Don't query them. Don't pepper them with questions. Just invite them into your world. Uh, whether it be a co-worker, whether it be a person that lives around the corner, um, I think we've, we've, we've got to go back. If I learn anything from from uh, from COVID, we've got to have real communities again. We've mm. got to have real conversations, real communities. And 
Don't be fearful of disability. Don't slap the kid's hand away when they point at somebody in a chair or somebody with Down syndrome. Talk to them about it. Don't well, that's it interesting. a fearful I mean, interaction. Let's just touch on that b- before I let you go, because part of the reason why people might not offer to buy a coffee from someone who they encounter is, is this sense of self-consciousness or awkwardness or, like, they don't want to do the wrong thing. Uh, you know, if, it were, if, if, if there were no holds barred and they were being completely honest, then they might be, come on, mate, and when they're having the coffee, they might be like, what's it like having no legs or what's it like, you know, whatever it is, but they can't, they can't say that they can't. And, and you don't know whether or not that, that person doesn't have the obligation to tell you for the 7 millionth time, what it's like not to have any legs or whatever, whatever it might be. But the, the, the sort of self-consciousness, you know, your asshole puckers up and people get a little bit sweaty (laughs) and clammy and they're like, I don't really know how to behave around this person because I don't want to put my foot in it. And I don't want to say the the wrong thing. How, How do you bridge that? Get to know the person rather than get to know the disability. So get to know the person. Like you would be sitting down at any other person, and I don't mean buy them a coffee and then walk away. I mean, you know, if there is somebody in your community that has a disability, get to know them. The disability is secondary. You'll learn more about the disability by never asking about it. It will just Mm. come up. I have never, I have never, and it's really weird coming from within the community to then to then take a job, say, in the media and interview interview people or even see the interviews of people with disabilities because I have never sat down with somebody in my team and asked them what their disability is, not in 25 years. Yet all the media that I see, the first question is, what's your disability? Um, mm. Excuse me, Josh, of course. Um, mm. <laughs> you know, like it, it is, uh, it, it's, it's very interesting to see that interaction and to see it be awkward but I would just say get to know the person and I've got two non-disabled kids and every time I pick them up at daycare or kindergarten I will have a press conference with this big mob of little kids that run around me and go why are you in a wheelchair what's wrong with that <laughs> and I'll answer them in a positive way to make sure that they get comfortable and never feel awkward around disability we need people from when they're two three four five six years old to just look at this thing ask their question be comfortable move on and learn in a uh, in a calm and friendly way I have a, a friend, uh, one of my good friends uh, has a congenital birth defect, which makes one, which has one of his limbs uh, be uh, be be too small. One of his arms is is small. And um, when we first met, it was actually uh, my partner who met him first. Uh, some years later, he said, "Why didn't you ever ask me about my arm?" And my partner didn't really know what to say because I guess he thought that it would be impolite. But the bloke actually found it more impolite. That people really pretend not to notice it. Yeah, he found it. He found it like like after a while, it was like there's this elephant in the room. Why do I have to bring it up? Like, aren't you sort of curious? Like, what? Why are you pretending not to see it? In a way, does that contradict your thing about get to know the person? I mean, we're talking about you know not on first meeting, but after once once you're friends, then just never bringing it up. Uh, again, it's hard to ever speak when you speak about a group. Every individual is going to have their own approach, and uh, like I said, I have a very, um, uh, I have a very unique experience with disability. When you're born with it, it may be different should you acquire it through trauma. Um, if I was asked that, why didn't you ever ask me about? I would just go, it never came up. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, right. You know, it just it just didn't come up. My sisters and brothers, they introduce me to people and they go, and I've seen their friends go, hey, he's in a wheelchair. <laughs> you didn't mm. tell me mm. that. Like it just, <laughs> I personally find it just doesn't, it doesn't come up. I, I don't ask people, I don't, I don't know, maybe it's a, there's a there's a normality normality now that I that I have around it that I've experienced mm. so much variation of disability that when I sit down there it's just kind of just, well yeah I mean it doesn't yeah. it's not like you sit down with someone and you go you know why are you so fat or like you know why <laughs> uh, you know why did when did you lose your hair if you're talking to someone who's bald you know you just don't yeah it does it shouldn't it shouldn't be the first there shouldn't be the leading thing about them uh kurt uh you're a national treasure it's lovely to talk to you thank you for for making time for us no problems mate um it's it's been fun Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Sepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.